Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Today we talk to a former Google employee turned campaigner who's made it his mission to alert society about the dangers of using computer algorithms to capture our attention. Are there social harms like alienation and loneliness being caused by everything that you use on the internet trying to maximize how much time you spend on the screen? Yeah, but that's showing up on the balance sheet of society. It's not showing up on the balance sheet of Google as a cost. That was Tristan Harris, co-founder of the Center for Humane Technology. He came into the FT recently to talk to me about why he co-founded the Center and what it does. Welcome, Tristan. Thanks for having me. I wonder if you could start by telling us what job did you do at Google and why did you decide to leave? Yeah, so when I was at Google, I was a design ethicist. And what does that mean? So people think ethicist, they think, oh, self-driving cars, should we kill one person or five people, trolley problems, things like that. I was concerned about the unsexy ethical problems, which is how do we know that the actual impact of technology we use every day is actually a positive impact or not? Meaning how do design decisions about where we spend a huge chunk of our lives now on on especially smartphones and social media and the surface areas of technological influence, is that good? And how is it manipulating human nature and human instincts in ways that are going to be not just problematic, but potentially deeply threatening to the social fabric. Okay, let's rewind just a bit and go back to your days at Stanford, where you were a student in Professor B.J. Fogg's Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab, which has become a legendary institution. What did you learn there, and how did you see that applied in the tech companies that you worked for? Most people think that technology is a neutral tool, like a hammer. You know, hammers are neither good nor bad, it's just a hammer, and Who knows how society will use it? Smartphones, social media, YouTube, these are the same things. These are just hammers. They're just tools. And who knows how they're going to be used. Therefore, the tech companies are not responsible for anything. It's just people being people. That's a common narrative people believe. Let me tell you why that is 100% not true. The Persuasive Technology Lab at Stanford is a lab where engineers study the psychology of persuasion, literally from Edward Bernays, the nephew of Sigmund Freud, and Robert Cialdini's influence to clicker training for dogs and animal behaviorism training and Pavlovian clocks and all this kind of stuff, is basically understanding that there are human instincts deep inside of us, almost like puppet strings, that we don't even notice because we don't really know ourselves that well. And they can be pulled and prodded in ways that can steer people's behavior. So if I want you to check something a lot, I can turn that thing into a slot machine, meaning you pull and refresh to see how many likes you got on Instagram. And sometimes you have 10 new likes, sometimes you have two new likes, sometimes they're from people that are really famous, and so you really get excited, and sometimes there's nothing. And that variability is addictive, not because that's you, that's because that's me as the designer making it work that way. So at this lab, many people who came out of it went on to become in the high ranks of Silicon Valley, people leading the industry, including the founders of Instagram, who are my friends from the class. Mike Krieger was the CTO of Instagram. And we both learned these techniques together. And people dramatically underestimate what is known about the human being, the human animal. My further background in this is I was a magician as a kid. And that's really important because how is it that as a five-year-old, I started doing magic when I was five, I could fool the psychology of a person with a PhD. So magic is not about how smart you are. Magic is about fooling deep circuitry in the human mind. 
that makes it seem as if someone is reading your mind or makes it seem as if someone made this thing happen and made that cause lead to that effect. But you're really just hacking these universal human instincts. And so that's really important is that it doesn't matter how old you are, what language you speak, what education level you have. There are universal features of manipulation. And the Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab was an extension of that knowledge base. And what most people don't see is that most technology designed today is leveraging that encyclopedia of knowledge about how to manipulate the human animal and get certain outcomes to happen. Very often we tend to think that behavioral economics and the whole kind of nudge school is quite a benign feature, right. that we are encouraging people to do good things, organ donation That's and right. so on. And here in the UK, uh, you have the uh, behavioral insights group, the government unit that does nudging. But how on balance do you think this is being used? Is it more for nefarious activities, as you put it, or for positive good? Well, the challenge is that all of these billion dollar tech company corporations are trapped in an arms race to capture human attention. So even if they had positive uses, you know, YouTube will say, well, we want people to watch better videos than the kinds of things that they would see on TV. But really, they're in this race for whatever captures your attention next. So if you watch one video about anything, they point a supercomputer at your brain to say, what is the perfect next video I could show you based on the video you just watched that would be most likely to keep you here for much longer than you expected? And you've used this very powerful phrase, it's the race to the bottom of the brain stem. Can you explain in a bit more detail what well, you mean by that? Yeah, so there are certain things that work on a human being. So let's say I'm doing the nudge thing, right? So nudging means I change the choice architecture by putting one thing closer to you and another thing further away. And that makes you more likely to choose it. It's like at the grocery store. The milk and the pharmacy are at the back of the store, at least in the US, because those are the two most popular items that you come to the store for. But meanwhile, we want you to look at everything else before you go there. So nudging is this light form of persuasion. The race to the bottom of the brainstem means I have to drill deeper and deeper down the brainstem. It's not enough that you use the product. I have to addict you to it. So if I have to addict you to it to get that 30 minutes out of your day, I need to crawl deeper down into your nervous system and create that unconscious habit. I need to not wait for you to use the product when you want to. I need to give you a reason to come back and check. I need to deliver rewards at a frequent rate, buzzing your phone with here's 20 new likes, here's five new likes. Now you've come to expect those rewards are coming. So now you're feeling, if it's been 15 minutes, you're feeling that little twitch, that little anxiety. And now you are unconsciously choosing to check Instagram um, because I've kind of hijacked some of your nervous system. And so what starts as this honest race to capture attention goes deeper down into, oh, fear works really well at capturing your attention, sensationalism, if it bleeds, it leads. But it goes even deeper than that. If I go into identity, for example, teenagers use a lot of Instagram and Snapchat, I can go into your sense of identity with Snapchat filters. I can create a beautification filter. So a teenage girl will take a photo of themselves and they basically make it really easy to apply a filter, which gives you you know, a thinner face, wider skin, enhanced eyelashes, bigger eyes, and it's an unrealistic standard of beauty because that's better at capturing your attention. If you had two photo sharing apps, one with a beautification filter, one without, the one with beautification filters is gonna outcompete the other one. But that alters a child's sense of identity because who I am becomes how do I look? And how do I look is based on an unrealistic standard of beauty where it doesn't just change their beliefs on the phone it's now been shown there's this thing called body dysmorphia where kids are actually getting plastic surgeries to look the way their Snapchat filter shows them. When you were talking just then, the thing that struck me was that what you're really describing is a really interesting and pervasive form of power 
isn't it? That's right. We are changing power dynamics in our societies in very profound ways. If power is the ability to enact consequences, then shaping people's attention and beliefs and behavior means shaping consequences. There was a bit of a joke in the tech industry that when Mark Zuckerberg was going around the country talking to people and people thought that this was the beginning of a presidential run, a lot of people were saying, well, why would he want to take a step down to become US president? Do you think that he's more powerful than the president of the United States? I had heard a story from someone who um, had been at Facebook and was about to leave to work for one of the major president administrations. And he said something like, well, why would you want to do that? I mean, you know... This has way more power and influence over the world than that. You know, I think there's an honest question to ask there. Why would he want to become president if he's already editor-in-chief of two billion people's thoughts every day when they open up Facebook? We started off this conversation talking about your time in Google, and your title was a design ethicist. Did you not think that you had more influence to shape the way that the industry was going within the tech industry rather than standing outside and flagging these issues? Yeah, it's a great question. The reason I'm here with you right now is because I couldn't change the system from the inside. Not that there was anyone evil or malicious or bad inside of Google that I met who wanted to steal as much time from people as possible or anything like that. It just wasn't a priority. And I actually even got to doing that job as a design ethicist, not through some kind of official designation, but I actually came in as a tech entrepreneur. I had sold my company to Google, and I worked as a product manager the first year. And I became uncomfortable with the overall direction of the tech industry writ large, not just Google. And I made a presentation saying that we as Google have a moral responsibility to correct and be careful about the social consequences of what we're making from notifications to email to social media, we have to be really on top of this. And this presentation ended up going viral to 10,000 people or something at Google. And the generous perspective is Google generously gave me the space to think about and study those issues. But when it came to trying to change it from the inside, I was unsuccessful and that's why I had to leave to raise a public conversation, which is why we're here right now. They are very unusual companies though, aren't they? The giant tech companies of our days, because they are not solely concerned with maximizing profit in the way that some of the cartels or the monopolies or the oligopolies back in the day used to. And certainly the people who lead these organizations talk a very good game about philanthropy, wanting to help mankind to solve the world's biggest challenges, to cure disease. In rhetorical terms, at least, they are more benign than a lot of their predecessor companies, no? Yeah, I think that's the challenge that that's what they believe that they are, because it seems so innocuous from the outside. I mean, like, let's take something like YouTube. It seems like you're just giving people access to watch great videos and recommend the best next video for you to see. What could be wrong with that? Let me tell you exactly what's wrong with how you go from autoplaying a video to changing the fabric of society. One of the things that our Center for Humane Technology does is we actually gathered former technology engineers and insiders and product managers who know about these problems and couldn't get the system to change from the inside and then joined us to help. So one of those people is Guillaume Chasley, who's an ex-YouTube engineer, and his research has shown that because YouTube is always trying to figure out what the most engaging video to show you next is, it tilts the entire playing field. Like imagine a ant colony in front of you and all these ants are humans and YouTube has 1.9 billion ants plugged into it. It's more than the number of followers of Islam. And 70% of what people watch on YouTube is driven by what is autoplaying or recommended next, the recommended videos on the right side. So 70% of 60 minutes a day of people's time on YouTube is driven by what the algorithm is calculating will keep you here. Now, what's the bias there? He's shown if you airdrop a person 
and they land on one video, let's say a 9-11 news video, the first autoplaying videos will be 9-11 conspiracy theories. If you airdrop a teenage girl to watch a dieting video, the next autoplayed video will be the anorexia videos because that's really engaging for people who start with diet videos who happen to be the ages of 13 to 18. If you airdrop a human animal on a moon landing video, the autoplay will be UFOs and flat earth conspiracy theories. So the recommendation system is not asking what's true. It doesn't even know that. All it knows is these are the kinds of things that keep you here. So now imagine if that's what it's like in English, imagine what are the 9-11 conspiracies like in Arabic? How many engineers at YouTube speak Arabic? It's tilting the entire playing field for societies that the engineers don't even speak in. And with things like Facebook, that's creating like genocides in, in Burma and in Sri Lanka. And it's causing real material harms. Do you think that could be solved by design change? I mean, could we redesign the whole system and the architecture of this so that we are actually encouraging the better angels of our nature? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. That's the whole premise of our work, is that there is a humane way to design these products differently. But to do that, you have to let go of the notion that we need to maximize how much time people are spending watching videos. Right now, YouTube wants to believe that there's no problem with just being like television, just saying we're going to keep you here for as long as possible. But for them to recommend videos with an algorithm, to have a digital Frankenstein pulling puppet strings and steering all these people towards videos that it doesn't even know are conspiracies, it would need to say, let's not recommend any videos. Let's instead ask, what is the thing that's got this person here in the first place? What would be most helpful for them? And to know that, we can't just look at what they click on because what they click on could be just whatever we manipulate them to see. Digital Frankenstein is an incredibly powerful term. How are you at the center trying to address this problem? What practical steps are you trying to take? Well, in answering that question, you might say, well, how could you possibly change the system? You have $500 billion of market value in Facebook locked up in a business model that's entirely about driving engagement and screen time. How could we, or you and I, possibly think we could change that system? So what we found is that we've been able to change that system by changing how the engineers inside the companies see the problem. No one wants to think that they're causing harm in society. No one wants to think that they're responsible for populism around the world or people believing in conspiracies or mental health and teen loneliness issues. They need to be able to say and explain it away as that's just human nature being human nature. What we've been doing is showing that there's a causal relationship between the design choices we make by autoplaying videos, the design choices we make with beautification filters on photo sharing apps that leads directly to these negative consequences. And by doing that and by talking about limited attention, this arms race for attention, and reframing the way people see it, we've caused this year Facebook to adopt time well spent as the new design goal for the whole company, which Mark Zuckerberg did in November 2017. And Apple and Google have both this year launched time well spent managing features that are all about digital well-being. 
And the way that that has happened is by more people being aware of the problem. So even though it sounds so naive to say, just raise awareness, it actually does change the behavior of tech companies. So you think rhetorically, at least, that some of the companies are getting your issue. I mean, I was at the Google I.O developers conference earlier this year and Sundar Bichai was definitely using a lot of the rhetoric that you have been using. Do you think it goes down into the bowels of the organization or is it very much a kind of public relations front at the moment? It depends on which companies. I think that Google and Apple have done a good job as baby steps with you know, even conceiving that it's their responsibility to change the products if they're to improve people's well-being. It's not just how people use them, but they're actually providing a channel that manipulates deep human instincts like slot machine rewards and things like that. So that's the first step is that they're taking responsibility. I think that Facebook has been much slower. They're catching up now and doing more. But for the beginning, they were treating this as a PR problem. How do we make this problem go away? And it wasn't until lots of unpaid researchers, many of whom I work with, did research late at night, staying up till three in the morning, scraping the service and finding out and calculating, you know, it wasn't just those hundreds of thousands of dollars in Russia ads. This must have affected a lot more people. And by publishing how many people they thought it was affecting and creating more public press around it, that's what led ultimately Facebook to admit that 150 million Americans, which is more than the U.S. voting population, were actually affected by the Russian propaganda. You have talked at one point about needing an FDA, a Federal Drugs Administration, for tech. Tell us what you mean by that. How would that work? Well, I think the first thing to realize is, so why would you do that? Because in FDA and in medicine... You know, we have this notion of the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. First principle, make sure you're not causing any harm. In technology, why would we have a Hippocratic Oath for tech? I mean, isn't tech just progress? If there's more tech, that isn't life just getting better automatically? That's why, again, this comes down to questioning, how would we know if that's true? What if technology is a net negative force in society? What would that even mean? How would we discern that that was possible? So the FDA for tech thing is just that we have to ask honestly and be curious about actively we have to like reach out and find out are there social harms like alienation and loneliness being caused by everything that you use on the internet trying to maximize how much time you spend on the screen yeah but that's showing up on the balance sheet of society it's not showing up on the balance sheet of google as a cost right how would that work in practice do you think they ought to be audited as it were or regulated by an fda for tech I'm not sure if there should be specifically a new entity called an FDA for tech. We certainly need whoever is doing oversight to have the kinds of expertise. No one wants bureaucratic policymakers deciding what Google should or shouldn't show in recommendation systems. But we ought to have a few table stakes. One is transparency. People should be able to know, globally speaking, how much time people are spending in different demographics on these services, know what kinds of things are being recommended. Right now, there's no transparency for how often is YouTube recommending conspiracy theories to people. There's no way to know that. Our independent researchers found that YouTube recommended 15 billion times the Alex Jones InfoWars videos. That's 15 billion recommendations. He could only get that number by doing his own independent research, basically pointing headless Firefox browsers at YouTube at a video and then watching whatever was recommending and then just continuing to crawl the site. We need more transparency so that the companies can basically feed that information out so oversight can actually happen. You mentioned Alex Jones. I mean, he has obviously been banned from Twitter recently. I mean, is that a good step, do you think, that the companies themselves are now taking overt intervention to prevent what they see as extremist views? It's a very challenging area. Everyone feels very uncomfortable about this. Why should Google or Facebook or Apple Podcasts be the arbiters of truth? They have too much power. How should that happen? The problem 
is that what people don't understand is let's say we take our hands off the steering wheel and say everybody can just speak. You know, it's about free speech. Free speech is not the same as free reach, meaning people focus too much on the ability to speak and don't see the way that these systems are flooding the channel of attention. Attention is the finite resource we have. There's only so much of it. We can't grow more unless you spend nine months growing a new human being. And so we have a finite amount of attention out there. And when YouTube says, let's show you something that's going to keep you on the site for the longest amount of time, and it's biased towards conspiracies. Conspiracies tend to keep people really deep, you know, get you down the rabbit hole. Um, that changes the social fabric. That changes people's beliefs. And it also, because there's only so much attention, there's not attention for the counter speech that says, here's reasons why you shouldn't believe that. And what people don't understand is how much recommendations by these machines are driving what people are doing. If people were choosing to watch Alex Jones because they want to, that's very different than YouTube is putting Alex Jones at the top of your news feeds every day. We're just a few weeks ahead of the U.S. midterms. Do you think these forthcoming elections are going to be in any way less manipulative than the previous elections? You know, what I worry about from knowing some people on the inside of these companies is that these systems are fundamentally vulnerable. Any open society in which anyone can speak and jump into any group at any time means that any foreign actor can jump into your population, go find the conspiracy theorists, and start stoking toxicity. And this happens, by the way. I can, for example, so people understand how this works, I can say I want to run an ad campaign, and I want to target warrior moms. Who are warrior moms? They're mothers who self-disclose that they believe in the anti-vaccine conspiracy theory stuff. So now I'm Russia. I want to screw with your entire population. I'm going to run a targeted ad campaign towards warrior moms, go find the warrior mom groups, and then pump that back into Facebook with something called lookalike models, which says, give me thousands of users who look like this first group. Let me find users who look like them. Normally, this is used to say, this is a Nike loving person. Let me find other users who like Nike. That's a useful tool. But if I can find all the conspiracy theorists who look like the first group, then I can feed garbage to an entire set of groups. And this is exactly how the systems still work. And it's a huge fundamental problem. If you care about the public sphere and what people are thinking and believing, even if you are less addicted to technology or you don't use Facebook, you live in a social fabric in which people are electing leaders based on the content of what they're believing. And these systems are still controlling what other people believe. To what extent do you think all of us as individuals are understanding more the way that the system works and are doing something about it ourselves and that we still retain the agency to form our own opinions. And in fact, that might well increase because we are understanding the ways in which we are being manipulated because of the activities of you and your center. Well, I was just with Yuval Harari, who wrote Sapiens, and we were talking about this fundamental thing that we think we know ourselves, but we really don't know ourselves that well. Anybody who's a meditator realizes the extent to which we don't know ourselves. And he says that we have this view that choice and belief happen inside a secure enclave of a human mind, that we're just thinking and believing totally independently on our own terms, critically discerning and navigating the world. The customer is always right. The voter knows best. We put authority inside of these human minds. But we're entering an age where computers can know us better than we know ourselves which is why when you land on YouTube and you think, no, I'm going to watch this one video. I know those other times I end up watching three more and staying for two hours, but this time, no, this time, it's really going to be different. And then you wake up you know, three hours later from a trance and say, what the hell just happened? It's because YouTube knew something about the perfect chess move to make against the chessboard of your mind. 
But it's quite possible that you end up with these terrible societal outcomes in pre-digital societies. I mean, I'm thinking of Stalinist Russia or Nazi Germany. The extent of the kind of brainwashing in a pre-digital era was astonishing. And you could argue that the ability of all of us to access information that is completely not controlled by the state is a very good thing. So I think access not controlled by the state is a good thing overall. Access is very different than what is currently our situation. Currently, we are being recommended things. And increasingly, this is important, more and more of our experience will be driven by things that are recommended to us by algorithms, things that are calculating the perfect recommendation. Because in the attention economy, if I can use a supercomputer to figure out the perfect thing to show you that'll keep you here next, and the other guy does not, I'm going to win which means everyone's going to enter into this arms race of who has more data, of who can use a bigger supercomputer to point it at your brain and figure out the perfect thing, which means that it's less and less in human control, which means that it has more and more of these features of what's divisive, radicalizing, conspiracy-minded, etc. So, you know, we really have to turn this around. Final area I want to touch on is one of the striking things to have come out of Silicon Valley of the past year or so is the upsurge of concern amongst the employees of the companies themselves. We've seen this with Facebook and the whole argument about political bias. We've seen it in Google about their consideration of going back into China and working on military contracts. To what extent are the employees themselves going to be the people who are now driving a new architecture for the whole industry? I think that, you know, when people say, how on earth can you change this? Or do we do it with policy? Or do we do it with, you know, something else? Changing employee attitudes is the fastest way to change the behavior of these companies. If you think about how long it takes for a new policy to be not just written, but signed and then enacted and then reacted to by the companies, it takes a long time. Look at the Delete Uber campaign. The Delete Uber campaign actually changed the culture at Uber and caught Travis fired because it became really uncool and demoralizing to work at Uber while these things were going on and nothing was being done. And, you know, that's actually a model for how we've thought about this, that when people working at these companies who think they're doing good for the world see that fundamentally they're leaving democracies open to manipulation by foreign actors and pulling apart the threads of society, that's really demoralizing. And you don't want to work there, nor do new people want to be recruited there until those companies are making demonstrable big efforts to solve the problem, which they're starting to do. But that is the way that I think, both like you said with Maven at Google, the military effort that employees speaking up is actually the fastest way to change the accountability. It's an economic force too, because if you can't recruit and retain the best people, how are you going to be successful and keep your stock price up? You've painted a pretty bleak scenario of the ways in which our society is already changing and could be even more vulnerable in the future. On balance, where do you think we're going to end up? Do you think that our awareness of this as an issue will lead to countervailing forces and ending up in a good place? Or you think we're on a steady slide to a very bad place? Well, I'll say that the forces right now are driving in a dangerous direction, which is why this awareness is so critical. You know, Charles Kettering said, you know, what a, a problem well understood is a problem half solved. So the first thing is we have to understand the dynamics of the problem that we're living inside of a limited mind and we can only see so many moves ahead in the chessboard. And if we build technology that outpaces our instincts and manipulates us, we're losing control of ourselves and we're creating these dangerous consequences. So I'm optimistic that if we can see the world that way, then we can realign technology with a more authentic and clear-eyed view of human nature, which is our mission at the Center for Humane Technology. And I think if we can do that, we can solve this problem. That's why we do what we do. But we really have to you know, sort of stomach looking at the truth as inconvenient as it might be before we can get to a better place. Thank you very much, Tristan. Thanks for having me. 
we've been asking listeners to send in their views on overrated and underrated technologies, potential threats to the tech industry, and what non-tech book they would recommend that has influenced how they think about technology. To contribute to the debate, please email us at tectonic at ft.com, or why not send us an audio recording that we can include in a future episode. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, take a look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.